Good morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, This last week, I had a rec league basketball game. I don't know if you knew that about your pastor. I play a little basketball. I love playing basketball. And uh, this past week was a special treat because we had an early game, which meant that my two-year-old and my four-year-old and my wife could come and watch dad play. Um, I love having my two-year-old and four-year-old in the stands because they're my best fans. They forget all the shots that dad misses, and there are a lot of them. And every time that daddy turns the ball over, that's just daddy trying to be a good sport and help the other team. It was ugly this week. We went into the competitive league this season, and um, we are below 500. We aren't the worst of the worst. Like, we can beat the worst, but we are far from the best. And this night, we were playing one of the best. And we got what Mr. Barker, my grade school teammate's dad, used to say, our clocks cleaned. It was bad. We lost by 15 points in the end, and that was only because the other team stopped trying in the second half. And I forgot to tell you the best part. The other team, they only started with four players for the first 10 minutes. Did I mention that my family was watching? (laughs) On the car ride home, I heard from the back seat um, my four-year-old, Judah, He asked the question, Daddy, did your team win? Hmm. Yeah, son. Daddy always wins. (laughs) I couldn't say it for much longer. I had to tell him the truth because he had to learn that the daddy in the front seat isn't Superman, although he thinks that right now, and uh, he will for a couple more years, I think, but it's wearing off. I had to tell him the truth. Daddy lost. In fact, for the rest of the week, Hannah told me at home that uh, he's talking about how bad dad got his clock cleaned in the basketball game. Daddy always wins because daddy hates to lose. I hate feeling weak. I don't like being weak. I want to be able. I want to be in control. I want to be right. Just ask my wife. I want to be strong. I don't like it and I feel uncomfortable when I'm holding the project back at work or other people are depending on me and I'm not coming through for them. I'm letting them down. And I really hate it when I feel um, like I should know something that I don't know. Like when you tell me directions to your house and the street, this street, that street, that intersection, uh uh-huh, 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 I have no idea what and where you're talking about. And so I'm going to act strong and rely on Google later. I don't like feeling um, lost, and I don't like feeling um, confused. That's uncomfortable for me. And maybe it is for you too. And so we do things, and we over-justify and self-justify in our lives because of those weaknesses. And, it, 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 and we, it's real. It's real. I think that I'm such a good dad, or I think I'm such a good pastor, or I think I'm such good in this category over here that I'm going to forget and be totally blind to my weaknesses over there. And if those weaknesses come up, I'm just going to project to the back seat. Daddy always wins. I'm going to project to Facebook. This is my life. This is the way that I really am. My friends, I do that. And if you're true with yourself, you do that. And if we do that spiritually, 
And if we do it in real life, we can fall into a spiritual trap of believing that we're stronger than we are. And that puts us at a huge disadvantage spiritually with God. Because God asks us to go to him to be our strength. Him, our strength. And if we are going to be completely justified in ourselves, and we're going to think that we have it all together physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and we're going to project that to other people, we're going to start believing that same stuff ourselves, and it's going to be ugly. In the end, the Bible says a self-justified person is far away from heaven and far away from the true God that wants to dwell with us. What's incredible, what's incredible about this story this morning, it's the story of the Roman centurion. You maybe have heard it many, many times is that there, this man is incredibly intelligent. He's incredibly successful. He's incredibly rich. And he has what seemingly is very little need in his life. But as much power and as much authority and as much uh, self-justification that he has, he realizes that he's weak. And Jesus, in the end, God himself is amazed at this man's faith. In fact, he says among all of his peers, he has an extreme advantage spiritually because his faith rests on God for dependence. This is the story. Do you want that faith, by the way, for yourself? Say yes. Say it now like you mean it. Yes, you do want that faith for yourself, and the Holy Spirit gives you that faith. The good news is it's open to you, and it's available to you. Jesus just says, believe. Now, believe these words from Luke chapter 7. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Okay, Jesus is talking here to all of these people, it says. He's been preaching this incredible sermon, very, very famous sermon in Luke chapter 6, where he talks about the love of God, God's word, and how we are to put God's word into action. This was his sermon. Many, many people are listening to him. He's very popular at this time. Um, He entered Capernaum. Capernaum is his home base, his ministry center in northern Israel, around Galilee, that sea. This Capernaum is a fishing town on that sea, and we know things about Capernaum. You can go there today. You can take a boat over there, and you can visit the ruins. There's still the supposed home of Peter, where Jesus, uh, the Bible says, healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. You can still walk around there. You can go into the synagogue, the pillars of the synagogue, at least, where we learn later on that perhaps this, this man built that foundation or built that synagogue himself, if this is the same one. But you can still walk around there today. Imagine yourself there. You're in that little fishing town where Peter's from and other disciples are from where Jesus makes his headquarters of ministry. And then we find out that in this town, there's a centurion, verse 2. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Okay, the word centurion here is the same word as century, which means what? A hundred. And so this is a military leader in charge of 100 fighting men in the world's most elite army of the time. This is the big time. This is Rome. He didn't make it here by accident, right? He's worked his way up. He's been a professional. He's very intelligent. And uh, he's good with, with giving commands and taking commands if you've made your way up this far with the Roman government. So he's important. Just think about that now. Very important. He has a servant. Uh, just a side note right here. Some people have, I've heard them say it, they've said it to me, I don't believe in the Bible because the Bible condones slavery. Well, guess what, people? God did not create slavery. Do you know who created slavery? People that wanted to put other people in slavery. And so when God's word talks about slaves and it talks about slavery, it's doing it because God says, you made this thing yourself. And if you're going to be good about it, if you're going to treat people humanely, I want to make rules about it. And here we actually see 
a, a, a slave owner who is doing it correctly. He's caring for his servant. We're going to see that he cares for the servant, and the word in the Greek is like maybe even an assistant to him, but he cares for him so deeply that although he had the right as a Roman citizen not to take care of a servant and just let him die and not take him to the doctor and get him healed or do anything, he does because we're learning characteristics about his faith. We're going to see what's at the center of the faith, but we learn that he is a very compassionate man. Although success has come his way, success has not gotten to his head or his heart. He still cares deeply for the servant. Verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus. Circle that phrase in your mind for later. And sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. We learn three more things about this centurion. Characteristics about his faith, about his characteristics, about his life. Number one, the Jewish people love him. Now that's strange because do Jews and Gentiles get along? What did the Jews think of the Romans? The Romans were the occupiers. They came in and they had taken over their land and so they wanted to get rid of the Romans. In fact, many times in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish people came to Jesus asking him to be their king, perhaps to drive out the Romans. But what about these Jews? They love this man. They go to bat for him. What does that tell you about his characteristics? What does that tell you about his faith life? It's a description and then we learn he loves, they say. He loves all the Jewish people. The feelings between the Romans and the Jews was mutual. The Romans looked at the Jews and said, unsophisticated, uneducated, they're stupid, they're, 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 you know, they're superstitious, that's the Jewish people. They looked at them as a lower class. But this man, it says, loved people that were unlike himself. He loved a diverse group of people. And he loved them so much that the third thing we learn he is big with his stewardship. In fact, he funds or he finds a way to fund this huge civic and religious building, the center of town, the synagogue where worship would happen. He may have been a convert to Judaism himself, but we do know that he has faith that is alive, and we learn that later. Um, we keep reading. He was not far off, that is, Jesus was not far from the house, when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But, and again, circle these words, say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. A faith that floors God admits weakness in self. A faith that floors God admits weakness in self. And what I mean is this. This centurion, again, had every reason to be strong. He had every reason to self-justify himself and say to himself, I don't need God. But amid all of his success, he's a very keenly aware of things that he can't do, which actually gives him a huge advantage. And if you think self-justification is like some church term, like, oh, justification, that's some theology out there. It's real. I, I, had, I talked to a father a while ago who was self-justifying big time. He said this. He said, yeah, I'm not spending time with my family and my kids right now. But, he said, what I'm doing is I'm going to work. 
I'm putting in extra hours at work and I'm getting promotions and I'm doing extra stuff over here. I'm building up a whole bunch of money. Why? Because later on, I want to go on a bunch of vacations with my kids and my family and spend a bunch of time with them. Do you see what he's doing there? That's self-justifying. In our life, we could be like the centurion and have a lot of success in one area and we could self-justify in another area and say before God, God, I'm so good in this area, I know it's going to cover up for all the other areas in my life that I'm bad at and I'm weak at. But this centurion knows that he has a sick servant. He can command armies to go and march and be a death machine and go into other cities. He can protect his city, and he may well have been like the chief of police in his city to protect his city. And he could give commands, and he could give orders, and people will move. But one thing that this centurion could not do is go into his house, go into his servant's room, and say, be healed. He knew his weakness. He knew that he had no power. He couldn't bark commands at the cancer and tell it to cease fire. He knew he was totally inept for that job. And that's why God is floored by his weakness, because he recognizes it. Our weaknesses are not so much our greatest danger, but our greatest danger is our illusion of strength. I'll give you an illustration of that. A couple of years ago, um, I met Roy. Let's call him Roy. True story. Um, on the outside, Roy was a centurion. He wasn't in the military, but he was uh, upper up. He is an upper up in uh, his business. And so he goes across south central Texas. And when he says go, people go. And when he says come, people come. When he says fired, people are fired. When he says hired, people are hired. He's not all the way on the top. He takes commands. But he's over a whole bunch of people in his work. He's successful. He's driven. And he also wants a family life. And he wants to be successful and driven in his family life as well. One day, Roy came to me, and he told me something that totally floored me. He said, I don't have it all together. No. He said, in fact, my marriage is in shambles, and my kids are making decisions that I have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. And it's shameful to me. It's so shameful that I haven't even told anybody. He says, I haven't been there. (laughs) I haven't been there for my wife. I haven't been there for my kids. And this is my fault. I asked him, what are you going to do? Can you fix this? And do you know what he said? No. I don't think I can fix this. What did I say? Good. (laughs) Because you cannot fix this. You weren't made to fix this. You were not made to be the healer. You were not made to be the Redeemer. You were not made to be any of that. You were made to be weak. And that, my friends, and this is the next thing he said, yeah, and the more that I try to fix it, the worse it gets. And that is the beginning of a faith that floors God because it's an awareness of our weakness. My marriage is broken. Is it so much that we're just incompatible? Or is it that you've been unloving and I've been unloving in my marriage and I've been unfaithful? (laughs) That's called total depravity. That's what we are before God. Why can't I get away from the addiction that I try to get away from? Or why do I keep going back to those pet sins that I keep going back to? Is it really because the world is so bad and I'm a victim all the time? Or is it what the Bible says, surely I'm sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And I run back to those things because by nature... I'm sinful, and I cannot keep my word. 
to my peer group, to my family, to whoever it is that I keep my word to, that I won't go back there. I break it again and again. That's a total awareness of self. (sighs) Look at this man's desperation. He says, I don't deserve to have you do this. He says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, verse 7 and 6, or 7. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. In our sin, we don't deserve Jesus to come underneath our house, not with the Holy God. In our weakness, we are so unlike the Holy God that he asks us to be. We're broken. But here's the amazing thing about it. Jesus doesn't deserve to come into your house because of your weakness, but Jesus works his healing, forgiveness, and gives you his righteousness. This is what the Bible is all about. This is what this man gets. Look at those verses 6 and 7 and see his need. Did we get that up on the screen? It's up there. Good. But then look at this. A faith that floors God hears and believes in the healer's words. Look at verse 3 again. I asked you to underline this earlier. The centurion heard of Jesus. In other words, it's one thing to feel desperate and needy, but it's another thing to know that there is a solution. This man had lived in uh, Capernaum, and let me tell you a couple history lessons from Capernaum. It was earlier in Luke when Luke wrote about this, about a man in the synagogue who was demon-possessed. And this man was demon-possessed to the point that his family couldn't control him. And so Jesus came and he healed the demon-possessed man in the very synagogue that this centurion financed. Do you think that he heard about the healer? It was earlier in Capernaum, maybe months, maybe weeks, we don't really know, when Jesus was preaching And this whole crowd from the whole area comes in and comes into this house in Capernaum and fills it up and he's preaching authoritatively from the word of God. And all of a sudden the roof caves in. Do you remember this story? And a man is lowered down on a mat to Jesus' feet. It happened right here in Capernaum. Do you think he heard about that? Do you think he heard about the time when Jesus looked at that man and he said, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And the man stood up and he walked out. The word of God is a great thing and the message has gotten to this guy's heart so that when he is in his weakness, it's not just enough to be in your weakness, but this is what true faith is, is to rely and to believe on a God that heals so that when I break the marriage, so that when I am the bad friend, so that when I run back to the pet sins, I'm not just desperate, I'm not just needy, and I'm not just weak, but I run back to the healer who died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, your sins included. I'll go back to the story with Roy. Uh, Roy was in tears. And uh, I asked him a question. I thought that I knew the answer because he had told me that he had been a lifelong Christian, but he hadn't been to church since he was a little boy. And as he told me, the more I try to fix it, the worse it gets. I asked him, do you know Jesus? And he said, yeah. What about Jesus? Well, that he... You know, he was the good guy in the Bible, right? He, he did all the good stuff, and then he died on the cross, and, you know, he rose again after three days. I said, yeah, so what? What does that mean to you? Crickets. And for the first time, I believe, or maybe it was the first time he's been reminded in a long time in his life, he heard about a Savior God who lived the perfect life for him, a father who is weak, who lived a life for his children that are weak, that are depraved by nature. And that when Jesus put his hands out on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant that all of the sins 
of Roy, his children, his wife were forgiven. And that, my friends, is the beginning of where healing happens. Right there at the cross. Because we can't justify ourselves. And we can't fix the problem. We can't heal the boy. This centurion is running to Jesus pleading for him to come. He's not worthy to have him come underneath his house, but he knows that that word of God, that word of God that had healed people in the past is the same word of God that is at work in his life too. And so he trusts in it. He doesn't just say, I believe in Jesus and I know a bunch of history about him, but he says, I'm calling on Jesus. And that's what faith does. It recognizes the weakness, but then it believes and it calls on Jesus for the strength of forgiveness because he justifies. He took on the sin of our punishment. He restores. And we won't get there until we feel weak. But then he's going to heal and he's going to bring us um, he's going to bring us the healing that we need in our life. Look at verse um, oh, first of all, look at verse 7. He says, look at this faith in the word of God. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but and then here's his faith. Just say the word. Say that phrase back to me. Say the word. Remember that for, for later, okay? And then it goes on to verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. God healed the servant because all Jesus had to do was what? Say the word. Okay, look at the word of God and look at the power that Jesus has. The, man, the people go home, the servant is healed. And you ask yourself, well, what does that mean to me in my life? That's a great story. And the word worked with this servant over here. The same word of God that worked with that servant is at work today. When the word of God is opened up and you drink from the word of God, where does my Bible go? Here it is. And you drink from the word of God because he says, my word is true. And he says, my word gives you the comfort, and you are weak in many areas in your life. So look at, look at a couple of passages. You can either bring out your Bibles to look at them, bring out your phones, bring up the app. But these are a couple of passages to go back to when you are uh, wondering about where is God's work in my life and how is he going to work? He goes to work because, number one, Jesus is impressed by his dependence on God's word. He is impressed by his dependence on God's word and Jesus' promise. He's, he, he's not impressed so much. Jesus isn't amazed. And by the way, there's only two times in Scripture when Jesus was said to have marveled or be amazed at someone's faith. The first time that he was amazed or marveled at somebody's faith was in Nazareth earlier in his career. He was amazed at their faith. But what about their faith? What is it, Glenn? Their lack of faith. But now a Roman centurion the same political party that's going to put nails through Jesus' hands and feet is now held up as an example of faith for the entire nation of Israel. <laughs> Why? He's not so much impressed about how much he loves his servant. Jesus isn't so much impressed about his philanthropy. He's not so much impressed about all of the good stuff that he does and all the friends that he makes and all the impact that he has on his community. I do believe that that is a fruit of faith, but you know what Jesus is most impressed by? This man's dependence on his word. And his word alone. Say the word. Now let's get to the passages. When you're chained by your sin and you feel the regret of the past, when you know that you've messed up and you've created a prison for yourself emotionally, 
Or maybe you're in a real prison because you've gotten caught and you're wondering, is there redemption? Is there forgiveness for my sins? When you see that you're weak, you're going to ask Jesus to say the word and he's going to say, open up to the Psalms. This one is Psalm 103.12. You're wondering, is there release? You say, Jesus, say the word. And here he says, say it with me, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus, say the word and it will be so. Your sins are forgiven. In other words, the Bible says that your sins are removed infinitely as far as the east is from the west. That's the gospel. That's grace. That walks you by the hand in your weakness. When you're wondering in your life about if you're going to be provided for or if there's enough money in the bank or if there's going to be food on the table or if, you're, or if God's going to take care of you, in that weakness, if you come across it this week, ask Jesus to say the word and he's going to answer with his word, Psalm 121.7. Let's say it together. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I have you. My word says I have you. And just as that word healed the servant, I'm going to protect you, defend you, and keep your life and your welfare. When you're confused or unsure, you heard me saying earlier, I hate being confused or unsure about what's going to happen next in life or why that, that one thing happened in my life. Go to Jesus and say, say the word. And he's going to come back to you and he's going to say, Romans 8, 28. Here we go. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not only do you know that he's working out things in your life, he said the word, he promises that, but he says that you have a purpose in it and he wants you to hang in there with it. And when I lose a loved one, and we've lost a lot of loved ones, in the last week and a half, two weeks, Chad, we've lost three saints at Holy Word particularly. When I lose a loved one and I'm looking for comfort and I'm finding myself weak in my sorrow, I go back to the Word. I open it up and I say, say the Word. And Jesus says in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And that's a promise of heaven for those who put their faith in Jesus where there is no more weeping, there is no more sadness. Last, last example. Um, and I got this from a connect group this week, so I'll admit I'm ripping it off. It came up in our group that somebody felt the weakness that they weren't getting the spiritual experience that other people were getting. That they had to have the feeling of a spiritual experience with God to really feel God. But do you know what God's word says? He says, I'm revealed and I'm found right here in the words. And when you feel the weakness and you feel your faith is weak even, I, I, he says, rejoice in that because you're not weak in faith, but you know, about your, you know about your deficiency of strength. And Paul says it this way. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and he's, pray, and he's praying to God. He has this weakness. We don't know what it is. It could be a physical weakness, emotional weakness. It could be a, it could be a number of things, but it's a weakness. And he prays to God three times for this weakness to be taken away. And three times God says, no, and this is why. Let's read this together. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
Do you get it? He wants us to look at our weaknesses this week. And when you come across them this week, instead of saying boo-hoo to your weakness, why does God put this here? This passage is asking us to say, thank you, God. Not thank you. Not thank you for my, my sinful nature. Not thank you for anything that is in me, but thank you for the grace. Because it's grace that walks Paul from his weakness all the way to the power of Christ. Whether it's weakness physically, spiritually, emotionally, this week, God's prayer is that you recognize that weakness. And I think it was Martin Luther who said, God does two things with weakness. Either God, when, when we're weak, God despises when we despair. But when we're weak in our weakness, he delights in it when we go to him with prayer. And what he's asking is for us to go back to the cross again and again. And when you do, you too have and will have the faith that floors God. Amen.